0: Happy New Year, DSR listeners. This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkopf, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you, and Happy New Year.
1: 9, 12, 10. 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast, where we, as we often do, chat with an author of a book we think is worth your attention. Joshua Krlancic is senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he'd studied Southeast Asian politics and economics and China's relations with Southeast Asia, including Chinese investment, aid, and diplomacy. His new book is called Beijing's global media offensive, China's uneven campaign to influence Asia and the world, and I thought it was a very interesting look at a China that is starting to come to grips with the need for soft power and for other forms of influence that go along with being a, a world power. The book describes them doing a number of things that the U.S. and other leading powers have done, but with Chinese characteristics, as you might say. And I'd like to welcome you here, Josh. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm guessing that because you've spent so much time studying Southeast Asia, that the first sort of red flags of this sort of Chinese campaign came to you from taking a look at what they're doing in their, their own backyard. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, sure, no doubt. I mean, um, it was Southeast Asia, Taiwan, and Australia where I've also spent a decent amount of time. And so the first red flags came from, in terms of the two aspects, the soft power and sharp power. I, I don't feel like we need to um, explain sharp power to your audience, but if I feel like I need to, I can.
1: No, there, we have an exclusively nerd audience that yeah, knows okay. about this stuff.
0: So um, the China first sort of really tried to expand its major state media outlets and make them credible, an attempt to make them credible, sort of like Al Jazeera, I think, was their goal. A, a, a station based in an authoritarian regime, which would obviously wouldn't cover Qatar or perhaps some of Qatar's relations with other Middle East countries. And has its own problems, but generally in other parts of the world is regarded as a fairly credible source in like Southeast Asia and Latin America, etc. And so China was trying to expand its state media outlets, this is the soft power stuff, and make them credible in Southeast Asia, in Taiwan, in Australia, etc. Particularly Xinhua, which is a news wire, which has been the most successful. Xinhua has signed content sharing agreements with tons of news outlets in Southeast Asia and increasingly in other parts of the world, Africa, Europe, places. And what that means is that newspapers and websites and things like that are running Xinhua content and often not really labeling it at such as even if they are, most non-policy makers, opinion leaders don't really pay attention to the bylines of articles. Sorry to say that (laughs) to... this audience, but it's true. So if they just open up their browser and they see articles from Thai news outlets, they probably don't pay a lot of attention whether those came from Xinhua. So that was the soft power. they have had some success with that. There's other aspects of soft power, but we only have 25 minutes. And they've had some failures that their big state television channel, CGTN, and radio station, CRI, have kind of failed. They just, especially in the Xi era, they just continue to put out turgid propaganda. Xinhua has been more successful. And then in terms of the sharp power, they have really, what I saw first in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, and Australia, and and New Zealand as well was just a really, really intense use of the of, uh, sharp power. Sorry. So that includes several things. Having sort of pro-Beijing tycoons buy up all the local Chinese media, Chinese language media, so that Chinese language speakers and readers, of which there are a lot in Southeast Asia and in Taiwan, obviously, and in Australia, have almost no access to independent media covering China's domestic policies, China's foreign policies. This is actually true in the U.S. as well, but we don't need to. Don't need to get into this right now. There's really no, almost no independent Chinese language media outlets left in the US. So there's millions of Americans whose first language is Chinese and get their news from Chinese language sources, and they don't really have an independent source. The second thing that was obviously noticeable in Southeast Asia and Taiwan and Australia was an increasing use of disinformation moving towards the Russian style. Not as sophisticated as Russia, but moving towards the Russian style of kind of not just old-fashioned Chinese propaganda, but specifically trying to support one particular candidate, as well as just trying to create chaos and denigrate democracy in general. And then the finally the third thing, which I call in the book just sort of old-fashioned influence, because it's been around forever. It's just that China is now doing it. Is what you've seen in. in Southeast Asia and Taiwan. I have to be a little careful here because some of this is alleged, but some of it was proven. And Australia and New Zealand, for sure, was simply straight up paying politicians as to uh, illegally paying up politicians to support Beijing, as well as providing very very rich sinecures for retired prime ministers and other prominent politicians for at Chinese state companies, and then finally in these places playing a much, much larger role in sort of controlling dialogue or shifting dialogue or dominating dialogue at universities and think tanks and research institutes, both through student organizations, but also simply through pouring a lot of money into these organizations, think tanks and research institutions and universities in these places, which Australia now has. but and New Zealand is working on, but most of these other places have no restrictions on where where they get their money from.
1: I think the question that must be on the mind of most fairly sophisticated observers of international affairs is, how is this different from what other countries are doing? Uh, You've drawn some analogies to what the Russians have done with their state media, with their efforts to influence politicians on the ground with their disinformation campaigns and so forth, even the sinecures for foreign politicians sure. have been- have, in,
0: have in Europe, been... particularly, I mean, Russia was directly financing some political party.
1: Right. Gerhard Schroeder comes to mind. And yet the US does this kind of thing too. You know, we've had Radio Free Europe for for ages. And in fact, I just saw another article talking about its importance. We've had Fulbright scholarships. We've pumped money into pro-American campaigns of various sorts, sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly, isn't China just doing what other countries are doing? Or is there something different about it and possibly more pernicious?
0: Okay, well, I mean, I think we have to differentiate between, if you want to talk about Russia, I mean, I think China is more problematic than Russia simply because obviously Russia is now it's constrained by its war in Ukraine. Its its ability to wield the type of influence it wielded in the last few years in other countries is more limited. China is a much more stable and likely once they solve their quite disastrous COVID problems, going to return to higher economic growth. It's not Russia. It's not it's not a a collapse sort of semi collapsing state in many ways. It's But if you want to make the comparison to the U.S. and U.S. efforts, which is a legitimate comparison, and other people have asked me this, I think it's important to differentiate between what went on in the Cold War when VOA and some of these other outlets truly were essentially propaganda outlets, particularly in places where the Cold War was hot, like Southeast Asia, they really were propaganda outlets, and they operated simply in many ways, to produce U.S. propaganda, and of course, the U.S. also spent. We don't need to rehash this whole thing, but obviously, spent tons of money on covert influence, supporting dictators who are our side, et cetera. I think in the post-Cold War in era, you have to have a You have to really significantly differentiate the major state outlets from places like the U.S., France. I worked for Agence France-Presse twenty years ago. Japan, other places, all either have specific bylaws of editorial independence. VOA and RFA have this. Trump c- tried to get rid of them, but he failed. And so, VOA and R and RFA run negative stories, not ne- not specifically negative stories. They run factual stories about the U.S. government all the time, and run them on their site and all over the world. So. People get VOA in China or other places are getting stories like inflation cutting into Americans income or before the 2022 election, Biden, Biden and the Democrats are going to get shellacked or, you know, Biden, fa- Biden fails to pass. I'm not picking on Biden, but uh, Biden has had effect fairly effective legislation in general, but Biden fails to pass X, Y and Z legislation. They're completely independent. The same thing with AFP. If with AFP they cover Macron and the French government with complete editorial independence, same thing with other things, including obviously the BBC, which is probably still the most trusted brand in in, the, in news and probably the UK's most powerful tool of soft power. Xinhua does not ha- obviously does not have those; they can't cover China independently at all. So I don't think that that's a fair. Comparison anymore. It would have been a fair comparison in the Cold War. In terms of covert influence and paying politicians, I can't tell you everything the US intelligence community is, does, but this sort of meddling, open, sort of more open meddling that China does, is really not exactly the type of thing that the US and other countries, other liberal democracies, get into at this level. It's certainly not with other five eyes intelligence members like Australia and finally the third aspect of it the US doesn't get into at all you know using intelligence operatives to try to control the discourse on university campuses their countries uh, that that that's not, that's to my knowledge that it's not something that we really um, the United States really gets into at all and that it, and and then the fi- the final thing I would say is China is very much um the one place where you, I think there is an accurate comparison is now there's been increasingly, increasingly scrutiny by the major social media platforms of the U.S.'s activities, the U.S. government or agencies related in the U.S. government activities on social media platforms, which have been now called out for, to some extent, disinformation or misinformation or just state supported activity that may not be accurate. So there is some overlap there, but it it still doesn't, it doesn't compare to the level of just extreme waves of disinformation, as well as trying to choose one specific candidate. The US just isn't, that would have been the case in the Cold War, but like, for example, we don't go around, uh, Joe Biden, I I don't know when the next federal election is in Canada, but he's not going to go say, I endorse Justin Trudeau. He's not going to go say, you know, I endorse Keir Starmer, he might say nice things about him, but this sort of specific targeting of specific politicians to raise them up is just not explicitly, it's just not something we do anymore. And again, I think you have to differentiate. In the Cold War, all those, the U.S. did all those things, and many of them did not turn out well. So, but I think today, a lot of those things have been curtailed both by legislation and also just sort of the nature of the world today.
1: Uh, yeah, it, it certainly changed a lot. Although I think if you look at the case of sort of right wing authoritarians who are in a kind of loose alliance with Putin, whether it's Bolsonaro or Le Pen or the Italian right or Orban, the U.S. has been a little bit more outspoken again, and for good reason. I'm not, I'm not being critical of it. The Chinese certainly have evolved. This is all part of their rise in influence. They've become more. Sophisticated at these things as they go. One of the areas that uh, many people have been speaking about recently is, is is China's sort of entrance into the world of of social media. This has taken a variety of forms. You've had Chinese diplomats on Twitter engaging actively in Twitter arguments with you know, however influential those may be. But you also have TikTok, and you know, you have the whole debate, or debate around that. How do you see that evolving?
0: Well, I think actually one of the things that's interesting right now is that China has built up this apparatus, but right now they're in a weak position. That doesn't mean China is very adaptable, and they have shown that in the past. Right now, they're in a weak position. So they're going to need to rebuild this whole influence apparatus because their global image is in the toilet. And that's due to multiple things. One, their diplomats, um, it's not just Twitter arguments. Their diplomats are just actively, aggressively belligerent, often for no clear reason, which is alienating countries. Their use of economic coercion against countries like Australia and Lithuania, their, op- their support for Putin, which costs them. A lot of Central and Eastern Europe had pretty warm feelings and relations towards China before that. They flushed that down the toilet by obviously by uh, their support for Putin. And they're obviously part of the appeal of China that they were selling through this influence campaign. And that was picked up, I hate to say this, but I said this multiple times by and quite a few American columnist, columnists early in the COVID period saying that China's authoritarian state and sort of managerial governance was going to handle COVID better. I don't want to. There was a very prominent New York Times foreign policy columnist who wrote several columns about this, which I think he probably regrets at this point. Now they're in total chaos and their managerial governance claim has kind of failed because they failed to use the period of zero COVID to prepare for this. And the, mo- the idea that they have a model of the superior in sort of handling crises, handling governance, et cetera, has been undermined. So they need to rebuild their global image to make the influence campaign more effective to start out with. I think that belligerent Twitter whatever has been completely counterproductive. It serves no use, except that it goes to please Xi Jinping, who seems to really like it. He has continued to promote diplomats who who take that line and so because it, China has moved from consensus authoritarianism before Xi to one-man rule, the one-man rules. And so the diplomats are just doing what this Xi is giving them signals. Finally, just to end on this with TikTok. Yeah, TikTok is um, now has a board seat by directly by the Chinese government. TikTok has been shown that it was not fulfilling its promises not to collect data on Americans and other foreigners. And so, although I am not a banning type of guy in general, and I understand, I don't understand the appeal. I frankly don't understand the appeal, but I have a 14-year-old son and he loves TikTok. I, I think there's, we're headed towards, and there's no other way that there has to be either a situation in which TikTok divests and all of the data is Uh, the TikTok holds on Americans has to be held in the United States. And I suspect European countries will ask for the same, Canada will ask for the same, et cetera, or Biden just bans TikTok, which will be probably not great with the youth vote. And probably, you know, but I mean, I think first, he, he needs to try to, they're working on negotiating some sort of agreement where the TikTok can still exist, but all the data is contained on servers in the U.S. Even that, I'm not sure is completely. The best would have been actually what Trump proposed, but he never went anywhere because he was too, you know, he was too scatterbrained. Which was sell TikTok U.S. to some U.S. company. It was Microsoft was interested, Walmart was interested. That might still be on the table, but. TikTok as it is now is not long for the, for the U.S.
1: Yeah, I, I, by the way, just as a footnote, have uh, written recently and, and, and for a while that I don't think it's constructive to do these kind of deals, negotiations, case by case. And that ultimately, just as we've had global trade negotiations, I think ultimately we are going to have to have some kind of global standards regarding information, disinformation, cybersecurity, tech security, that we don't have now. We, we, I, you know, we, we, we need to do these things.
0: One of the problems with that is that the U.S. ignored that for years. And so at the International Telecommunications Union, where a lot of these rules are set up, China and Russia, or, or debated China and Russia, because the U.S. was just sort of not paying attention in Trump, and even going back to Obama, China and Russia became dominant in this and amassed a group of allies who are all supportive of their sort of uninterest in cybersecurity, plus their, their commitment to what's called a sovereign internet, where countries just have their own, essentially, intranet, and then they cut themselves out from the outside world. So the U.S., one of the things I talk about in the book is the U.S. really, 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 really needs to amp up its game at the international telecommunications and push for all of these things, global Deals on information security, global deals on cybersecurity, global agreements on disinformation and information, etc. But with TikTok, because it's such a pressing issue, and because literally, I don't know the numbers, but like you know, a billion new users are are signing up every year, including you know every American teenager in the United States. Basically, they need to address address that imminently. And, and, but I don't disagree with the general idea that some broader agreements need to be made.
1: Yeah, totally agree. And 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 would say, by the way, that cybersecurity and information security are actually different things and require different sort of sets of guidelines. The Chinese have, for the most part, proven to be adaptive and, and evolve. I think in the past couple of years, you could argue they've had Setbacks in terms of their public image, as you've talked about, and also in terms of their economic growth. But you know, you, you made a reference to the hostile stance of Chinese diplomats, and there was a period there where you couldn't read an article about China without somebody saying "wolf warrior," "wolf warrior." But they've sort of dialed that back a little bit. Certainly in the Xi Biden meetings, they've dialed it back. We've seen it here with the former Chinese ambassador Qing Gong who in the past six months or so has moderated that position somewhat, he is now the foreign minister. He is an information professional. He has been a, a spokesperson for the government. His wife is a journalist. He's very sophisticated. He got to know a lot of American journalists while he was here about these things. Do you think this is a sign that they may... End up with a more sophisticated approach on these things going forward?
0: Xi Jinping has actually said several times that sort of that the, they need to step back from the wolf warrior diplomacy. The problem is that he, until now, he, didn't, he kept promoting these intense wolf warrior guys. And this is the first example of someone who wasn't so much. He is, just to step back, despite all this wolf warrior stuff, the foreign ministry is still one of the weakest ministries in the in China, as it often is in many countries compared to other ministries, like the Home Ministry, and State Security Bureau, et cetera. I can, and yes, I think it's possible that they will adapt. I think that the, one, si- one of the signs of that, and I talk about in the book, that it's harder for them to adapt. It was easier in the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jitao era, where they had consensus authoritarianism, it was easier for them to take in outside knowledge, They they weren't trying to please one man. There was a collective group of people who made decisions. But no, I wouldn't put anything past them adapting. I mean, there have been people, I won't name his name, but there have been people predicting the collapse of China for like, who wrote a famous book, who've been predicting the collapse of China for like 35 years. So I'm not going to predict the collapse of China. But um. Yeah, I mean, I think one example of that is that BRI, their Belt and Road Initiative, which has had a lot of problems. There was problems with opaque debt structuring and opaque contracts, etc., as well as early in COVID, a lot of their developing countries who were had loans just couldn't repay them. They needed haircuts, they needed bailouts, etc. And China didn't go all the way towards you know, bailing everyone out and giving everyone haircuts. But it went a lot farther than people expected. And I think that's a sign that they realized that the BRI in, in general with some of the debt problems and then also just stiffing developing countries who couldn't pay because of COVID was a bad image. And so it's wrong to think that China's not adaptable. I mean, they've adapted multiple dramatic transformations of their economy, not so much of their politics. I mean, Xi Jinping has dramatically altered their politics, but of their economy, of their foreign policy, of their diplomacy over the last 35 years. So given that, I think it's a mistake to suggest that they can't do that again.
1: Excellent point. I I think that's exactly right. And I think that's why you're your book is so important. Again, the title of the book is Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. If you care about international relations, you've gotta care about U.S.-China relations. If you care about U.S.-China relations and you focus only on what you hear about military issues, you're missing what's going on in the most important relationship in the world. This book provides important perspectives Josh Kralancic, thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we hope we'll have you back again sometime to talk about some of these issues as they develop.